0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So, a lot of us have probably seen the way that the left constantly and relentlessly attacks the meaning behind things, the magic behind things, uh, the, the ability of the individual to make a difference and to matter in the world. And I think that uh, Jay Burden wrote a good piece here recently talking about the tyranny of just, when we say it's just this thing, when you're just this guy, the way that it impacts people and the way that they're motivated and the way that we can kind of move beyond this, uh, uh, you know, kind of the the way that the left makes us small in these different situations. So I wanted to invite Jay Burden on. He's got a great show. He's got a great sub stack. Jay, thanks for coming on, man.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Aaron. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: So, can you explain a little bit for people who maybe have not caught the piece what you're talking about with the tyranny of just?
1: Yeah. So, as I kind of launch into in the article, I, in general, I hate talking about mass shootings. I think it's kind of gross. There's this race to score political points based on, you know, the kind of biographical details of everyone involved. So, in general, I just avoid them almost without exception. But there was a shooting a few months back. Uh, and there was a kind of a pretty generic progressive tweet going around by this woman basically saying like, you know, this proves that essentially the idea of the good guy with a gun is a fallacy. Like you could never do anything to stop evil. You're just a normal guy. And that phrase, you're just a normal guy kind of stuck in my mind because one of the issues that I talk about often in my work is the necessity of hero worship, the necessity of modeling yourself on men greater than you are. And so that phrase, just, you know, the idea that, you know, because you can be classified as a normal guy, right. That, that thereby means that you could never be anything greater than that. And so I don't mean to take this into kind of like a Tony Robbins style, like (laughs) motivational speech, but there is something to the fact where it's like in, in, Kind of continually reminding people that they're, you know, they're kind of venial, they're normal, there's nothing special about them. Well, that's essentially what they will become. And I think that, you know, and I didn't mention this in the in the piece itself, you know, but this is something that, that Lewis, who is mentioned, just not this work, talks about in The Abolition of Man, right, where he basically says that, you know, in negating the ability to make value judgments, saying that everything is the same, you know, categorizing everything is just this kind of like basic mechanistic piece you you really do take the ability for transcendent or heroic action out of the equation and so it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy uh obviously there's a lot to go in there that's just kind of a broad overview but that that's sort of the idea i wanted to get at which is the the kind of over oversimplification and categorization of that word just i guess
0: yeah i think it's really critical and you you reference lewis several times and i think it's important because one of the reasons that lewis feels so prescient today one of the reasons he's so relevant at this point when there are more complex or more subtle authors is that lewis continually hits in multiple works he does this in until uh till we have faces he does this in uh, the hideous strength he does this in abolition of man he does this in pilgrim's regress which you you reference in all of these works, he's constantly looking at the way that the modern world, especially academia, attempts to demystify everything, to, to disenchant everything. The key is to break everything down to its constituents, its constituent point of components, and strip everything of its deeper meaning. And by getting rid of that connection to the transcendent, that the left has done a lot of work, right? They've been able to advance a lot of evil things by stripping them of kind of the moral weight that they once bore when they were, uh, were uh, kind of more enchanted. But now that they're stripped down to their constituent uh, parts, when they become more secularized, when we've lost the language of the divine and the transcendent, all of these kind of evil things are able to be advanced. And he talks about that in places like, uh, 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 I'll just forget all the names of the books now, but he talks about the but the, the way that these different university professors have to go through this process how they drill out of each student uh their you know understanding of the good the beautiful and the true their connection to uh kind of these more raw emotions and instead they they treat, uh, teach them and train them to constantly be critical of these things to dismiss these ideas and this is what really robs people of their everyday her- uh, heroism
1: no, definitely. So the, the kind of primary example I lift from Lewis is a part in Pilgrim's Regress. So the, for those who aren't familiar, because it's more obscure relative to some of his other work, Pilgrim's Regress was the first thing he wrote after he converted. So C.S. Lewis had a, shall we say, tumultuous early life, uh, to put it mildly. You know, he had a number of affairs. He did not act uh, particularly well. And then he had a conversion kind of midway through life. And so he retold, using the prism of Paul or of uh, Bunyan's, not Paul Bunyan, excuse me, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, kind of the story by which he returned to tradition, you know he became a Christian. And there's a moment in this in this kind of like long, you know, uh, narrative allegory, where much like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, our, our main character in C.S. Lewis's version, John, is taken captive by a giant. This is a moment that happened in both narratives, But in the, the C.S. Lewis version of this story, this giant is called the spirit of the age. It's essentially a stand-in for Freud. And the power that this giant has that sort of freezes our main character in place is he can make you look transparent. He can basically gaze at you, and you'll be able to see what's under your skin. Right? You'll see your, your blood pumping, your muscles moving. And John is disgusted by this. He's like, oh, this is all I am. You know, I'm just meat. And that reminded me of, of a meme you may have heard from kind of the Reddit Rick and Morty atheist types. You know, like, oh, you're just a, you know, you're just a, a meat computer riding around in a robot suit, something like that. You know, which is, again, that phrase, just. And the idea is, oh, you are simply an amalgamation of biological components. And Lewis's point is, well, there's a certain perspective from which that's true. You know, I mean, you are a biological creature if those biological components stop working, you will cease to exist. But that's not all you are. And so in, in Lewis's story, uh, thankfully, you know, for the, for the sake of the protagonist, uh, the spirit of the age is defeated by reason. You know, essentially, he he realizes that's not true. But that, that same thing, whether it's Freud explicitly or that same mechanism of kind of classification, demystification is kind of rampant in our society. So one of the other men that I cite in this, and he's one of my favorite authors is, is Thomas Carlyle. So Thomas Carlyle was one of the seminal Victorian writers. He's a bestseller. Uh, Dickens loved him. He's kind of fallen out of fashion, especially after the, the Great War, and only slightly started to come back into, uh, into popular relevance. But he has this book called Heroes and Hero Worship. And it's been a while since I've gone through it, so I can't remember all of the examples he goes through. But essentially, his thesis is that uh, hero worship is synonymous with civilization. That's what makes your culture and makes your civilization. And so he goes through a series of great men. This is also very much tied to the great man thesis of history, if you've ever heard that. Uh, And he goes through their lives and basically says like, okay, these are the different archetypes. So he goes through someone like Luther and he says, well, Luther is the archetype of a priest. You know, or Cromwell is sort of this like warlord. Yeah, I think he does Muhammad as well. Uh, And his point with this is not necessarily that they are good guys, you know, who you'd want to grab a beer with, but he's saying like, these are great men, you know, there is something to be emulated. And if you look back even a generation or two, this is something that our forefathers understood. Like if you look at the founding fathers, they were very clearly trying to emulate the best parts of the classical tradition. You know, Lee, for example, was was very interested in Napoleon, very interested in Alexander. And so he was able to emulate certain things about those great men. But this the same classification that looks at you as a kind of mere biological construct applies that same kind of like social acid to the heroes of the past. So very prominently, you know, we've all kind of watched the the, I guess hopefully all of us haven't watched, but we have seen the dialogue. I'll put it that way around the Napoleon movie, right? And as if you're aware, effectively they made Napoleon uh, an incel, you know, basically saying like he's just this angry short little man who who couldn't get any from his wife. And so he conquered the world. And like, don't get me wrong. It's from my limited understanding, uh, Josephine and Napoleon had, shall we say, an unorthodox relationship, but to reduce him to that, I mean, it's like asking, well, how did Genghis Khan treat his mother? You know, it's like that, that completely negates the importance of the man.
0: The the only interesting thing about a man could be the way in which he has a relationship with a woman.
1: hundred percent. The only value. (laughs) Exactly. And bigger than that, it's attacking a broader cultural narrative of Napoleon as, you know, the consummate general, Napoleon as this kind of world conqueror. And it's one of those things that, you know, like many things, is kind of built into your brain by modernity. So you mentioned the, the Lewis passage. And what he's going through in uh, the Intro to Abolition of Man is a children's textbook, right? This is a, a primer for grade school children. And it's using that same mechanism of classification and demystification to examine poetry and basically say like, oh, that's, this is just X, Y, Z literary device. You know, it's florid prose, something like that. And in doing that, it is taking away the kind of transcendent significance of that. And I mean, i certainly learned that in school, even though I had better schooling than many, but that same premise of, oh, I know what that is. So it is just, you know, a member of a category. Uh, I is insidious. And it's something that if we if we want to create a culture, if we want to create a sincere culture that has a true attachment to, you know, our forefathers, uh we can't do that. You know, we can't just throw away things because they, you know, belong to the same category. We can't allow that demystification. And I realize it's sort of difficult to engineer that backwards, you know, to 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 regain sincerity, but I think it's it's a vital uh it's it's something vital that must be done.
0: Well and I think that's what makes you know Lewis such an interesting case study because he was the man for which that happened right he is a man you know again so many of his books uh till we have faces the the fox character the tutor is the one that demystifies the world for the main character and that ruins her because she cannot accept the acts of the gods she cannot understand a relationship with a divine because yeah you know, th- this has all been destroyed beforehand for her and and again that theme is just Recurring over and over again. That's what makes this, you know, that hideous strength kind of the dystopian novel of our times because Lewis truly understood what the small death of kind of this uh, academic attack on the transcendent would do to humanity. And, but he's also the guy who overcame it. He's a man who, who was, he was a man of letters. He was, uh, you know, secular. He, he was brought up without, you know, uh, without really having an attachment to this stuff. And he overcame that, you know, his book Surprised by Joy is is kind of is his non-fictional account of of kind of finding that again. And I think that's so interesting because, of course, you can't talk about uh, Lewis without talking about Chesterton because G.K. Chesterton influenced him a lot. And one of my favorite passages from G.K. Chesterton is his man who rediscovers England. You know, he goes around the world looking for this thing you know, searches far and wide to the reaches of, of the jungles and the, as, as far as you can go. And immediately he, he and finally, after going all around the globe, he stumbles upon this wonderful land that's enchanting and he feels entirely connected to it. it it's got everything he was ever searching for, all the things he thought he was missing. And he finds out it, it was where he started. You know, it was, the, it was the place where he began. He rediscovers the England from which he came, but he can only recognize it after having gone through this process. That, that helped them to appreciate all of the things that were inside of that. And so I think you're right that it's really critical for us to find our way back to this place of connecting with transcendence. I recommended actually uh, Heroes on Heroes and Hero uh, Worship uh, in my video that I released yesterday because it was the first time I read it last year uh, from, from Carlisle. Uh, and it, it is really critical we are so intimidated we're so in many ways we feel ashamed we've been made to feel like it's low class or silly to connect to these things anymore to to feel the greatness of these figures and to feel the need to emulate them it's somehow beneath us or somehow somehow foolhardy uh, but but i think getting rid of that particular ick factor when it comes to and things. Is really critical because if you cannot, like you said, you know, and as Carlisle says, if you cannot embrace your heroes, if you cannot if you cannot follow in their footsteps, then you can certainly never create any greater culture or greater movement.
1: No, definitely. And I like that phrase you, you know, you used, you know, kind of make it seem embarrassing. Because that's one of the things that you'll you'll notice about our current regime is very often the carrots and stick they use are not, they're status-based, right? Our elites are foxes, not lions, by which I mean, they tend to do things indirectly. They tend to do them via social pressure. And so one of the other things I examined, which is, well, how do kind of modern day progressives deal with heroes? So we've already talked about the deliberate undermining of men like Napoleon. Obviously, you know, the American founding fathers are literally being uh, erased. Uh, But also, well, how do they write their own heroes? And there are kind of two versions of that, which is one, there's the, and I, I hate talking about kind of like more uh, like modern franchise properties, but it's kind of the best example to hand. So on one example, you have the kind of like Captain Marvel types, you know, the like, I'm a uh, girl boss, you know, I, I don't need no man. I'm going to punch the dude at the bar who cat calls me, you know, essentially just this kind of like, like horrifying amalgamation of like 80s strong like paste it onto like a, you know, a 110 pound uh, aging Hollywood starlet. And on the other hand, you have the way that they handle kind of more normative heroes. And you see this in the Marvel movies very well, which is that there's this constant bit joke, you know, where, you know, the camera pans up, they they kind of strike a, a heroic pose and then someone makes a joke like, oh, that was awkward. You know, everyone has a chuckle. And ingrained in that, other than just kind of being a cheap gag, is the idea that that heroism is silly. It's embarrassing. It's not real. And again, that that idea that this kind of like low cynicism of, well, I am bad and embarrassing. You know, I I do things that are unadmirable. So therefore, everyone else must have it too. No one can ever get above that is really damaging. And I don't just mean damaging in kind of like a psychic or spiritual sense, although certainly that. But we see the, the consequences, you know, kind of writ large in culture. So I, again, I realize the irony of saying I don't like talking about school shootings than mentioning multiple of them, but take an event like Uvalde, right, where there are armed men, you know, who have a, a situation where they are that is your job, like you are you were supposed to do that, and they stand outside, and don't do anything, they let people die, and I'm not going to say necessarily, you know, if they had read you know one more passage of Carlyle, they all would have you know ran in there like Rambo. But what I'm saying is that you this creates a decay in national morals and and. I guess like national psychic health, right? Uh, kind of a goofy language, but it's what we're going with. And so you see this kind of situation where, you know, the the best lack conviction, the to quote Yates, you know, the, the best lack any support. You have know, men like, you know, uh, the guy in the subway who's being charged for essentially, you know, uh, trying to restrain a violent felon. You have Kyle Rittenhouse, the entire weight of uh, the US deep state just tried to demolish. You know, these these men who do things that are right, do things that are brave, You know, take actions that are kind of above and beyond what they were required to do. Well, we destroy those people. You know, We have to completely ruin their lives. And on the other end, it's like, well, okay, like, yeah, sure, some of the guys at Uvalde probably lost their job, but like, are any of them facing the kind of prison time those, you know, that Rittenhouse and the other guy were? Like, like no. And so it, it is really a problem. And I think that as we look around at American culture and kind of see this see this decay, see this kind of lack of energy, it's downstream of the inability to to basically make kind of confident value judgments. And I think a lot of this initially starts through humor, you know, kind of making a, a joke at the expense of, you know, kind of an older version of culture. And don't get me wrong, like I make plenty of jokes. Like if you've ever followed me on Twitter, you know, I'm not a particularly serious person. But at the same time, that's kind of corrosive. You see this very, perhaps most cleanly in a lot of British comedy. You know, you look at things like, you know, Monty Python, John Cleese, who I think, don't get me wrong, very funny. But they are making fun of a previous existing social order. You know, like the guys in bowler hats are inherently ridiculous.
0: And now John Cleese laments that that culture doesn't exist. He does, He goes on and gives interviews about what happened. Why isn't London a British city? It's Like, well, because you destroyed what it meant.
1: To it, exactly. <laughs> to and rich. this is why these kind of things matter. You know, this is the the strata of culture, the thing that allows it to propagate going forward. And so when it comes to that phrase, just, you know, it is really the social asset that eats away at it. And so one of the things that I kind of continually harp on in my writing and in my content is basically, look, like the progressive left hates you. You know, and from a certain perspective, they know what they're doing. They are demolishing your cultural and intellectual heritage. And it, once you've accepted that premise, it, it begs the question: Well, why do you listen to them? You know, you, you understand that they hate you; they're your enemies. Like, why do you look to them for, you know, moral acceptance and moral guidance? And so, when it comes to men like, you know, Jefferson or, or Lee, who don't get me wrong, from a certain perspective, have morally compromising things about them, but that's not why they're relevant. No one's like, you know, why I like Jefferson because he may or may not have had sex with a slave. Like, no one says that. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does from a certain moral perspective, but the idea of reducing, you know, our kind of intellectual heritage our great men, the people who we ought to be emulating to kind of their worst personal foibles is it's suicidal.
0: There's a really dangerous um, impulse in conservatives in particular, uh, the need to have somebody perfect before you can praise anything about them. If there's one failure, if there's one flaw, even if there's many failures or many flaws, you can't recognize anything about that person. Everything that they did is undone. And because the left dictate the level of focus that we provide to pretty much anything because they control, they have the mind control machine. They, they have the media. They can, they can zoom in and zoom out and maintain the, the hold or completely flush something away in a moment's notice. And because they have the ability to do that, they can just focus on something until the flaw finally shows. And so you've got guys like Daniel Penny and Kyle Rittenhouse, who you mentioned. And of course, you know, Penny is just destroyed. It's not even given. They don't even need to find a flaw. He's just, it's a white guy stopping a black guy. And so therefore it's racism. And and, then that's, that's all there is to it. But in the Kyle Rittenhouse case where they, you know, they try to destroy him legally, but he manages to escape. Eventually, if you focus on Rittenhouse long enough, you get the cringy videos and the weird interviews and the statements. And, you know, it's just a guy, it's a kid, you know, it's a guy who's barely, uh, you know, out of his teens and and has no clue how to comport himself in a kind of massive fame situation. And he's going to make mistakes. And any of the mistakes he makes suddenly mean you have to disown him. You have to, you know, it's either defend every single aspect of him or nothing at all. And you know, I wish Trump wasn't the guy the right had to learn this lesson on. Like Trump isn't that great a guy, actually. But if they're going to learn it on anybody, it should be Trump. And you can kind of see this, uh, you know, not not to rag on the people, you know, like, but but you can see this in the people, the 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 never Trump, but still, you know, maybe like Desantis guys or something. Uh, again, you can like Desantis, and 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 that that's justified. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is. There's a certain kind of guy who needs a certain level of regime approval and simply cannot support Trump no matter what. Uh, but I think a, a number of people on the right finally learned the lesson that they're just going to destroy whoever we put in front of you anyway. And so you might as well celebrate the things you like about someone. But I think you're right that this is a, a huge problem that the the right simply... Has this obsession with oh well if there was one thing somewhere in per- a person's past or even several things then we must forget every great act because a person is not their greatest act they're their smart they're their smallest foible and uh, th- that's a formula that's just going to destroy your culture every time.
2: Well, well, definitely, and
1: it's something that is not applied evenly either. I don't want to get into the the whole well, the libtards aren't fair argument, because to be honest, they're too powerful to care. It doesn't matter. Right. But if you look at progressive saints like George Floyd, for instance, there are a lot of things to find objectionable, but he can become sainted. You know, He can become this kind of icon of progressive civic religion. And that washes away any of the, the negative things that he may or may not have done earlier in life, allegedly, of course. And so that kind of begs the question of, well, why do do they do this? You know, why do they seek to denigrate kind of traditional heroes? So some of that I think is just pure power politics, right? Which is, well, I'm in charge. And so all my friends are cool and all the people you like are lame. So we're going to get rid of them. Like that's part of it, you know, just kind of like playground stuff. But there's another thing. And I bring up uh, Yukio Mishima in this as well for Sun and Steel. So Yukio Mishima is, to put it mildly, an odd guy. Uh, He was sort of this Japanese super fascist. Uh, he wrote a lot of plays and poetry, uh, acted in a few movies. I like his fiction quite a bit. Uh, the Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea is uh, truly disconcerting. He has a very odd perspective on things. But his his most famous book is probably Sun and Steel, uh, which is sort of this like vitalist text before vitalism, if that makes sense. But he writes on hero worship as well. And his point is basically like, uh, to, to kind of paraphrase it, you know, you never see a guy with a six pack dissing hero worship. You know, it's offensively, it's ugly nerds. It's revenge of the nerds, uh, essentially. You know, it's it's people who are mad that they are not transcendent or do have any kind of like transcendent virtue. And so they pick apart at it. That's certainly, I think, uh, a a part of the issue at hand. But another part of it, uh, and I don't mean to take this in a way that is uh, overly misogynistic, but there's a difference between how men and women write and consume narrative so the lego company did a very interesting study which basically they were they were wondering why Well, okay like we make legos they're incredibly popular and we have all these branded tie-ins but anytime we try to kind of push a branded tie-in to girls it doesn't succeed now why is that and so what they did is they basically did a massive study into how male and female children play and what they found is that if you gave a bunch of boys a room full of toys, they'd find something like Batman. And they're like, all right, I'm Batman. So I do the thing that Batman does. You know, I, uh, I'm rich. I fight criminals. I have cool cars. That's what I am. I become that thing. Whereas they found with, with female children, and obviously these are all averages. I'm not saying that you as a woman or a man have to do this. Uh, but what they found is that they made Batman part of what they were. So like, okay, Batman is now me. And he has the th- he has the categories that I have, and so what you see in media that is kind of more masculinized or more feminized is that the the logic kind of goes well. Okay, you know sometimes I am upset, I do bad things, you know I sit on the couch and eat ice cream, uh, so that way my characters do that too because they're just like me, which is kind of a, a an over feminized toxic femininity if we use that phrase version of it. Or on the other end, the the kind of hyper masculine is like oh it's Conan the Barbarian. You know, I'm going to be this cool guy with muscles and a sword who all the women like, and okay, like maybe, like Howard is a cool guy, but he's not quite that cool. You know, it's aspirational, and so that's part of it as well. Is that as we see the kind of power balance between the sexes shift, the relationship to narrative is going to to shift as well. So I think that's part of it. Do you, do you, am I on anything there, Oren, or am I just ranting into the mic?
0: No, I, I think I think that's very true, and it's interesting. It's interesting that it is. Difficult for the regime to kind of like you said, fi- find an aspirational hero <laughs> that isn't incredibly deeply flawed, uh, like criminally so. You have you have it always seems to have to be George Floyd's. And I wonder how much of that is connected to the fact that they you know they need to have somebody who kind of the disgruntled hordes can see themselves reflected in. You know, you can you you can't have uh Kind of bright, shining cities on a hill, when everything around you is rotting away, and you're in a situation where you need to feel like the the person in front of you on the screen could be you, or you could be that person, or you could take on aspects of that. And so, you know, that there's always this need to search for, uh, I don't know, can in, uh, increasingly degenerate people to hold up, uh, in, increasingly unimpressive people to hold up. As heroes, uh, because you can't really bear the idea that there would be someone that could hold you to a particular ideal. You can't. You have to have someone who you could be without making any additional effort. Which I guess I mean not not to you know we don't have to contemporize this if you don't want to, but I guess that could bring us to uh, the events with Harvard and uh, Claudine Gay here. Uh, you know, just just the destruction of uh, in any credibility that one of the most important institutions in the United States could have uh, by you know just defending a uh, president who clearly did not have the necessary abilities to do just very basic
1: scholarship
0: in a very unimpressive area. And that's really as much as they could elevate somebody. This is the kind of person they had to go to bat to defend.
1: Well, certainly. And that sort of brings up Uh, a relevant question, right, which is when we use these terms like right and left, you know, uh, progressive conservative reactionary, what what are we actually talking about? And I think that as Americans, we kind of have this default assumption that has to do with economics, right, that right wingers want freedom, free markets, left wingers want government control. And if you actually look at the the history of thought, that kind of breaks down relatively quickly, right? Like, is, is Bismarck a left wing figure because he had a welfare state? You know, there's another prominent German leader who had a welfare state who is uh, not particularly uh, left-wing either. But the the kind of reactionary answer to that is the answer is basically hierarchy. The right-wing believes in hierarchy. The left-wing believes in equality. And when you talk about a hero, that is by definition someone who is in a level of hierarchy above you. You know, I want to, that, that person is better than me. You know, you're kind of channeling something outside of yourself. Whereas once you can kind of use this Kind of social leveling to bring everyone down. You don't have to deal with that anymore. And when you look at a person like uh, Claudine Gay, uh, I'll put it mildly. You know, I'm by no means a Harvard academic, uh, but I have written more than eleven things in my life, and none of those have had plagiarism in them. <laughs> You know, and if that's the only barrier to, to get a nine hundred thousand dollars salary a year, you know, I'd like my back pay, please. Uh, and so it, it's one of those things where, again, right these. The creep of egalitarianism, you know, that, you know, you see in extreme in, in communism, but also kind of in a lot of liberal thought, it does produce bad results. You know, this isn't just a philosophical problem. You know, this isn't just one of those things where it's like, oh, the, you know, the crazy college kids are pulling down a statue or, you know, through paint at a portrait. You know, it creates real civilizational problems. And obviously the Claudine Gay thing is kind of funny, one, because her name is gay, but also because it's very clearly clownish. You know, this is the supposedly the best university in America, some say in the world, and it's being manned by someone who is, uh, to put it mildly, out of their depth. But at the same time, it's like, well, wait a minute. This is supposed to be the best, America, the best university in the best, most powerful country in the world, and it's being run by incompetence. And that's a bad thing. And that's why this kind of uh, radical egalitarianism is genuinely a problem. You know, it, it's a big... It's a big factor behind the, the competence crisis, as, as many other people have put it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, it it is only going to get worse, obviously, because the, the left is unable to, like you said, embrace any kind of hierarchy. And that means that they're continuously going to select for political ideology, and they're going to continue to drive a competency crisis. I, I don't, I think at this, I think we're at the point where you know a lot of people panic about this and it's bad. Don't get me wrong. Like obviously, your institutions failing is is generally bad for your country. But at this point, I think that those institutions have to die. Like I don't want, uh, I don't want Harvard to be fixed. I don't think there is fixing Harvard. Um, I want these. I want these institutions to crash and burn and be replaced by something that that's separate and greater. But I think that that takes a a right wing that can elevate people that can reach for the transcendent that is comfortable with creating a hierarchy. And I guess the question that you have to ask yourself then is how do you guard against this? I I saw, um, I know we were talking a little about this before we got on. I know you didn't see the whole stream, uh, but uh, Dave, the distributist and and, uh, Carl Benjamin had a, a episode recently where they talked a little bit about your essay and Carl was asking Dave, like, okay, who do we make statues to, right? And then Dave was having trouble. He's like, well, we could do this, but this person has, has this problem, and then, then there's this person, but, well, they they don't quite measure up in all these ways. And Carl's just like, no, terrible, wrong, you know? Like, they, like you're, you're doing the just. You know, they're, they're just this person. They only achieve this. They only achieve that. And so I think, you know, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we make the mentality shift to protect ourselves against this disenchantment, this belittlement that the left brings against us? Because it's constant and relentless. And this point, it's beaten into us so much that it's reflexive. We we feel uh, somehow uh, again, you know, small or um, or we're we're uncomplex, we're, we're simpletons, uh, we're fools, we're bumpkins. If we would worship something higher, if we were to put something in a hierarchy, if we were to admit that despite flaws or or you know personal foibles, someone's great uh, achievements are indeed great and worthy of honor and worthy of emulation. How do we break through that in a modern era? Because I think that's the thing that's really going to allow people to once again. Because once you see that, like I I, it's, I think it's infectious. Once you see people who unironically invest their, themselves in that in that spirit, I think that's the kind of thing that vitality that people. That elusive vitality people talk about is not just fitness or whatever, though. That's all part of it. And you should be uh, investing in that. But it, it, it's more the willingness to embrace without any kind of irony and while, without any kind of hesitation, uh, a heroic uh, way of being, a desire to uh, kind of pursue this and uh, and and not feel ashamed about your willingness to kind of elevate something to that point and pursue it.
1: No, certainly. And I didn't think I'd be citing Lewis this much, but in, in mere Christianity, Lewis kind of attacks the the problem of LARPing, right? Which is basically, he's like, he was a midlife convert. It wasn't something that came naturally to him. Like, how do you go about doing something like that? And how do you do it in a, in a real way? And what he basically says is you kind of just have to muscle through the LARP. Like it's going to be LARPing at first, you're going to be playing pretend. But if you look at the way children become something, you know, children become adults, well, they do it by mimicking adults, you know, so like when you're a kid, you, you know, you play shop, you play house or whatever. And then, you know, obviously kind of through gaming that out eventually becomes real behavior. And obviously that's embarrassing and uncomfortable to do as an adult, right? Like it would be nice to live in a culture where you could just simply be. The problem is we don't really have that option. You know, like I would love to live in such a society. That's not the one we've been given. So you sort of have to LARP it. You kind of have to go about it. Now, I am perhaps not the person for white pills on this. You know, I'm a, a big uh, a big cyclical history guy. And I think there's a certain part of it that we're not getting out of. You know, we kind of have to take our lumps as a generation. I really like what academic agent has to say on this when he calls, you know, Gen Z, my generation, the children of the ashes. You know, that essentially, like, we are part of that winter of civilization. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, it's all over. That's the nice part about cyclical history is that the hook comes back around for you. But at the same time, I do think that there is this kind of tyranny of self-awareness, tyranny of, uh, tyranny of self-awareness, which is actually where I got the title for my essay, is this idea that once you become aware of it, you know, once you realize what you're doing, you do lose a little bit of the magic. Now, the nice thing about that is, and if I've talked to several of my friends, like, you know, John Slaughter, who are in a similar position to Lewis. They are people who did not grow up in faith, did not grow up attached to tradition, but came back to it as adults. And what they said is, it's still a little put on for me. You know, I am someone who made this change midway through my life. But he says, look at my sons. He has two sons. And he's like, they, it's real for them. And so it's something that, it may never be the same you know as as a as a convert we're using obviously the religious example but you know someone who comes back to tradition but you can sort of break that pattern of let's just use the phrase generational sin you know you can become kind of the first data point in a positive direction and obviously you know that isn't that isn't the in you know, the most glamorous thing to do with your life but again we're in a situation where we are rebuilding a culture you know we we have We've had three generations of this kind of cultural decay at the very least, you know, this kind of uh, classification demystification that I talk about, and that does damage and that requires rebuilding. And, you know, if you've ever done any work with your hands in your life, you're aware of the fact that uh, it takes a lot of work to undo entropy. It takes a lot of work to repair something, to, to kind of build something back up. And this was a generational process to destroy. And I'm quite confident it will be a generational process to repair if it is repairable. And I know you said, you know, I don't want Harvard fixed. I completely agree with you. Uh, And one of the things that I think we'll see in this, and you see this already in media, like the Stepford Wives or anything that deals with the past, is this idea that, you know, don't believe your lying eyes. It's always been this bad. Uh, And I think that that you know these two kind of things coalesce together, which is as this, as the kind of like general broader culture, as the kind of progressive, progressive civic religion, excuse me, gets worse. They're they're kind of like flailing is going to increase because they can't be showed up, and so I, I guess that those two things kind of uh, tie together there.
0: Yeah, a couple couple threads to pull out there. I think it's really important what you're talking about. You know, there's a certain amount of c- cyclical history that we're stuck in. That's that's kind of what it means. And uh, you know, we, we even though it's a terrible truth yeah i you're gen z i'm a millennial i'm i'm actually on the i'm closer to gen x than millennial but i'm uh, so i'm i'm uh, a lot older than you uh but uh you know but we're both on the down slope of culture and it it really sucks to realize it but you're going to have to pay the bill for the people who came before you and there's just no way to escape that you may not have made these mistakes you may have been born into this world uh but but prior generations did not do the work. And that means that now you have to, you have to pay the cost for that. And so you might never, as you pointed out, completely be free of the cynicism, completely be free of this self-awareness. But if you want a generation that will be, you have to start now. And so that means you have to be the generation that plants trees. You're not going to sit under because you, yeah, you may not, be the one that is completely free of the cynicism that is completely free of the self-awareness that is completely invested in the heroic and the hierarchical and the transcendent but by larping it as you say by taking those steps the necessary steps to go through the motions you begin to embody you know to we'll quote CS Lewis one more time at this point cuz why not you know I, I i i may not love my neighbor but i find that if i take the actions of loving my neighbor over and over again slowly but surely I find that I do love him. you know this is the, you know, to paraphrase Lewis on kind of going through this process, you you larp it until you make it, you fake it until you make it. And so even if you can't completely cross that barrier by embodying the spirit of the heroic and connecting with the transcendent, even in a way that is awkward and confused and and somewhat inorganic at times. You bring yourself and more importantly, the next generation, one step clo- closer to that sincerity, which I think is absolutely critical. And oh, sorry, good.
1: Oh, no, not at all. Finish your thought there. I
0: was just, I was just saying, like, I th- I think it's really important for people not to get hung up on the well, I don't. But I'm not sure if I completely believe it or I'm not completely invested in it or if it c- feels completely organic. That's OK. Like, take the time to to go through the motion, make it real, put it into the world, and more importantly, put it into your your family, your community. Because if you're not doing that, if you're not the one who's willing to do that, then it's, an, it's one more generation that is going to be deprived of the ability to truly interact and interface with these
1: ideas. So let's just uh, complete the triumvirate and mention the third uh, most significant Christian writer of the 20th century, Tolkien. Right. And my favorite part of uh the Lord of the Rings is the scouring of the Shire. Right. It's it's vital to understanding the story more broadly. And what you have happened is basically, you know, the hobbits have, you know, the, the ring has been destroyed. They come back to uh they come back to the Shire, which is sort of this kind of pastoral picture of uh rural England, and they find that in their absence, you know, that this band of thugs has kind of taken control of it. And you know, there, there's a lot of very kind of vivid pictures of factories being set up, you know, knock down the hedges, knock down the villages. And it's obviously kind of a, a stand in for the way that modernity has destroyed a lot of kind of picturesque parts of, of English life. And so our heroes come back and they stop it. Don't get me wrong. But there's a couple interesting things about it, which is one, things are built back, but they're not the same. You know, they mention that there is genuine loss in that. There are things that do not make it through the filter. But also, the same thing happens for the for the hobbits who fought against it. They're different. They can't ever go back to what they were. And so I think that it's one of the hard things about being on the right and being connected to. At on one hand, we have this foot in tradition. You know, we like our ancestors more than the rest of culture does, but we're also tainted by modernity. You know, there's no there's no way around that. And I think that, you know, in within that kind of like benevolent larp we we've, we've talked about. There kind of has to be a little bit of self-awareness that there's still that kind of there's a boomer inside of you, you know, no matter how deeply buried. And so I think that you know, you talk about that, that kind of like, you know, building a culture for the next generation where that's absent. I think that has to be the goal. Because, you know, and maybe I'm overly pessimistic, like, don't get me wrong, like, look at my avatar, I'm a you know a, a Calvinist Christian, it kind of comes with the territory. But I look at my generation uh and I to be honest, I don't know if we're Caesar. You know, I don't know if there's a, a base Zoomer out there who's going to fix the empire. I could be wrong. I'd love to be wrong. But I do think that, you know, this kind of cultural degradation we talk about, you know, like you said, you have to pay the piper. And don't get me wrong, that's not actually a terrible thing. You know, what we were doing as a culture was not sustainable. You know, that the practices that, you know, our parents and our grandparents engaged in, and, and don't get me wrong, I love both those generations, you know, I love my parents, I love my grandparents, but they were burning down seed corn, you know, they were taking that kind of uh, generational wealth, obviously, but also the culture that kind of raised them, and basically, you know, lighting it to keep themselves warm. And so, you know, in all of this, right, maybe I've gotten a little bit off topic, but when it's kind of like, what is our path forward, you know, it really is, in that process of building a new culture. And so as, as Carl said, you know, when it comes to you know, maybe men you would build statues of. I mean, I can think of a couple, you know, maybe we could we could have a, a statue of, you know, Bowden and, and Sam Francis and, you know, all those guys, you know, uh, Burnham who we really, you know, like and appreciate as kind of like online uh nerds who like to read books. But I think that with all of those, you know, we will have to realize that these were these were flawed men. You know, these men did have problems, in the same way that we do. But you don't celebrate them for that. You celebrate them for the great contributions that they've made. And that's the way that you kind of build a, a fully sincere unironic culture, I guess.
0: Yeah. You've got to get away from being apologetic about these things. Uh, You know, the, which doesn't mean that you need to embrace the negative aspects of, you know, heroic figures. It doesn't mean that you need to venerate the flaws, but it means you need to be unapologetic about the veneration of the good. And, not willing to step away, not willing to back down, not willing to wilt in front of those who would bring, uh, you know, the point out the flaws, point out the issues and, and pretend like that brings down the whole man, that that destroys the entire archetype. Uh, because if you're willing to, if you're going, going to let people do that, then you're just always going to be bowing to them. You're always going to be in this, you know, uh, on the back foot. You're always going to be in this reaction instead of trying to figure out how to forge ahead. And so I think that, uh, rebuilding that culture by rebuild, you know, I say, you say going through the LARP until it's real, but also being willing to say, okay, but this is something, uh, there's something about this person I want to emulate. And that does not mean I'm uh, going to emulate every negative aspect of them, but I'm not backing away from embracing that. I'm not going to say that Kyle Rittenhouse is just some guy in, in any other in any other reality, Kyle Rittenhouse is awarded a, you know, a, a small fiefdom and his, you know, his, his choice of eligible maidens for marriage. You know, that that's the kind of heroic act that makes you someone worthy of respect. You know. In, not in connection to anything else you do, because it's it's so impactful. I, there's a there's a, a veterans poem and I can't remember all of it, but there was always a line that struck me. And it always talked about how, you know, some some veteran at the end of the bar who's you know, washed out and, and ha- you know, doesn't doesn't have anyone and uh, is embarrassing in certain aspects. But none of that matters because at some point he saved an entire platoon of people. And so he's better than 99 percent of the people around who would judge him and see him as as less because in the cosmic scales, he's done something so heroic. Uh, that that the rest of this is is really immaterial. Uh, and I think that's important to remember uh, because the left is going to tear these things down. They are going to assault these things. There there are so many aspects. Anything that's good or virtuous is something the left can find a foible in. And if you're not willing to stand and you're not willing to be unapologetic about the heroic acts of people that you want to emulate, then I, I don't think you can really take those steps forward.
1: Well, certainly. And you know, when we talk about things like irony and sarcasm, you know, and I think that that's something kind of endemic to the last three generations. Gen X, obviously, we're kind of renowned for their cynicism. You know, millennials had their own brand. And then uh, Zoomers have been described as uh, terminally poisoned by irony, which I think is a pretty accurate statement. And obviously, some, some part of that is an understandable reaction to the fact that we live in a very absurd society. You know, this is essentially the we, we turned the Emperor's New Clothes into a very large social experiment. And guess what, bud? You're living in it. Uh, and so part of that is an understandable defense mechanism. And don't get me wrong, like a lot of the gains that the, the radical right wing has made in the past 15 years has been due to the fact that it was funny. You know, it was fun to post Pepe memes. You know, it was fun to, you know, make fun of, uh, essentially like stuck up progressives. And don't get me wrong, it's very important. It's not my point. But every once in a while, if you've been on the internet long enough, you see someone who is truly subsumed by irony, you know, where it's just like everything exists in kind of pure reaction. Everything is a joke. Nothing is sincerely done. And, you know, you mentioned that reactionary tendency of the right way. And I think that they're sort of linked in a way, which is that if you're always moving in kind of moving in in a way that you define yourself negatively, you know, like, oh, I'm making fun of this. know or oh i'm opposing that you sort of become this like bizarre malformed creature and without the ability to basically just say you know and like you said like confidently just like this is right this is wrong you know this is a good man you sort of can't replicate as a culture you know you can't pass anything forward and so i think that it's a important kind of like outer limit there you know like maybe don't go that far guys i guess
0: all right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and pivot to the questions of the people. But before we do, Mr. Burden, can you tell everyone where to find your great work?
1: Yeah, sure. So you can find the Jay Burden Show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's two times a week, hourly inter- or hour long interview show. I've got Bog Beef, who was recently on your show, on tonight. I also have a Substack. It's also just the Jay Burden Show. I'm uh, pretty easy to find. And if you want to find me on someone else's channel, my interview with Alex Kishuda, uh just dropped today. It was recorded seven months ago. I don't remember what I've said, but people have told me that it was good, so I'm going to recommend that here.
0: It's always exciting when you do a, a, a interview and it's all, you know, long for a long time. You're like, man, I hope I sounded smart on that one. That's <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, no, definitely. Like, I yeah. got a message from one of my friends, uh, Arthur Dane, who's a who's a poster.
2: And he's like, oh, I really like, and he rattled off, and I was like, did did I say that? I mean, that sounds like something <laughs> right. I would say. I have no memory whatsoever. <laughs> But yeah,
0: glad, glad that sounded OK at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can very much relate to that. All right, guys, let's go ahead and look at what you had to say. Uh, Andrew Giller, thank you very much. It's been noted that people educated between the two wars were highly uh, uh, high quality thinkers. Examples would be C.S. Lewis, uh Jacques Hughes uh, Barzin and Milton Friedman. Why was that the case? Uh Well, I think that's certainly there's certainly truth to that though i think many people could also say that's also where some of your worst influences come from uh but it it is certainly a generation uh that had some high quality thinkers world war one obviously calls a large amount segment of the population especially in europe and so i guess you know those coming back have to take things pretty seriously it's a it's a, it's a very different world that they enter into uh, a disenchanted world, you know, of course, uh, for many, uh, and the different re- reactions that you get to that, I think end up showing you something deep inside the man. You have guys like Tolkien, you have guys like Lewis, uh, but you also have those that come, you know, completely unmoored from reality, uh, or those that embrace, you know, uh, silly socialist movements and those kind of things. And so I think that, uh, your mileage will vary. I don't know if you can just say all of them were were high quality thinkers, but we certainly get some very high quality thinkers out of that generation.
1: Well, I think it also can't be uh, it can't be denied that anyone educated before the Department of Education was founded had a massive a massive advantage. Uh, I'll be honest the the quality of American education at large has been precipitously declining for the last seventy years, and obviously you know the the interwar period is before that started. But uh, it certainly is a relevant factor.
0: Yeah, there's something that people need to understand about education. Uh, it, it's like food in a cafeteria. The, the more, thing, more people you have to prepare something for, the worse it gets. And so the, the more general you have to make something, the lower quality it becomes. So yeah, today you might have a higher percentage of people who are literate, uh, but literate means barely able to type something into their cell phone as where, you know, maybe in, in 1912, you would have had guys who were very illiterate, very unable to know certain things, uh, unlettered in, in certain areas. But the people who were educated were had to be fluent in Latin and things like this, because that was just what it meant to have an education at all. And so when, you know, as is so often the case, uh, things just kind of settle at room temperature. And so when you're trying to educate the masses, you get mass education and even your highest level thinkers are many are like, you know, uh, uh, standard deviations below what came before because they're, they're, the resources are spread so thin and the, you know, the, the generalized homogenized education is so poor that the heights are just unattainable for most.
1: Well, certainly. And I have absolutely no idea who was the president of Harvard in 1924 but I am hundred percent sure he was smarter than Claudine Gay.
0: Were it to be a rock, you would still be correct. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: not a particularly bold yeah. prediction. You know, right. I feel like the the math's on my side there. But uh...
0: yeah, safe bet to be sure. You should put a cigar on it. Uh, Creeper weirdo here says in a stream where Dave the Distributist and Carl Benjamin Sargon asks what the right wingers deserve a stat or what right wingers deserve a statue. I said Fred Rogers, and Dave was surprised, but I really mean it. He believed in things that matter. I mean, it's an interesting choice. So Fred Rogers is somebody who it's interesting because he's he's a good man, but he embodies some of the softer qualities. And that doesn't mean that's not necessarily a bad thing. He's certainly a good emotional role model for a number of, of people who need that kind of that kind of help. But it it does feel a little, I don't know, uh, it does feel a little leftist to choose Fred Rogers. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: Unfortunately, I, I don't get the reference there. I am Oh Mr. Rogers. A, oh, oh oh, yes, of course, of course. Uh, if you, inside if you shoes, down, outside
0: shoes, inside shoes.
1: If you go into the, the reading on that, uh, Mr. Rogers is, is quite blue pilled uh, on certain issues, uh, if you go back to it. he was there were there were certain decisions made on that show that they've talked about that were very nakedly political. Mm. Uh, and so don't get me wrong. I understand the point being made, but if, if anyone needs a statue, I think it's, it's Dale Gribble.
0: There you go. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, uh, Adam Mann says, I got in an argument with a historian a few years ago. He'd written numerous books and dedicated himself uh, his, uh, and dedicated decades of his life, to his profession, Yeah, when Pushy started telling me that it was just history, why do you care so much? Uh, I mean, yes, uh, it's kind of the story of many different uh, professionals, uh, academics. Uh, It doesn't really take uh, very long uh, if you start pushing against kind of their comfort zone, where you find that they're not super invested in the topic that they they ostensibly are experts in and are dedicated their lives to. Really, Twitter is for dunking on uh, on academics and politicians, uh, and so I've I've had endless hours of fun uh, prodding like professional philosophers and then getting them to kind of come to the conclusion that uh, they they can't really be bothered defending their positions.
1: Well, well, certainly, and you know people make fun of our mutual friend Dave the Distributist all the time for engaging in pointless debates, but every once in a while he'll get like a a, a real honest to god intellectual quote unquote. On his show, or he'll get in on Twitter to basically say like, "Okay, like you're allegedly an expert on the right wing." Like it was Scott McManus. I can't remember the guy's name. I,
2: I, yeah, he's gonna say that. <laughs> and basically, ahead. he's like, "All right, you're an expert. Defend this." And then it's just hand waving. It, it's absolutely embarrassing. And I mean, that goes back to the decline in the
1: quality of American education. You know, the, the rise of egalitarianism because uh, our elites are not impressive people anymore. And you know, you're this guy Adaman is right, like. very quickly, you realize that they're effectively, you know, despite their kind of like specialized status, they're they're just bureaucrats, you know, they're collecting a paycheck to enforce regime narrative. Yeah. Dave deserves
0: full credit for like exposing Matt McManus, I guess. And like, like he certainly did a great job of just, you know, showing him to be a completely hollow suit. But at some point it's just like, all right, man, I don't know if I can watch you beat that dead horse for another like six months. Like, I don't like, like like it it was it's it's dead it's very dead it's so dead it's glue like at some point this becomes obscene uh but, but but he certainly did a good job of it well
2: i'll put it this way you know dave is one of my my kind of like most foremost
1: uh intellectual influences that's kind of still currently around uh
2: but uh sometimes uh he doesn't know to let to, to let something go i mean he's been being made like we've been making fun of him for for reacting to to bread tube videos for what four years now yeah, yeah. so uh yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean there
0: yeah no it was interesting i had a you know i had a discussion with uh peter bogosian over on break the rules and that was interesting i was looking forward to it and i was kind of you know i'm getting there i'm ready I'm i'm reading up i'm prepared to to kind of Slay this classical liberal idol and finally kind of put this thing, you know, to bed. And then Burgosian and kind of the new atheist uh, and classically liberal cl- uh, crowd. And I'm expecting a lot of resistance. And it was very surreal because Burgosian basically spent the entire hour just being like, "So, what's your objection there?" And I'm like, "Well, you know." And he's like, "Yeah, I think I largely believe that now." <laughs> That was the entire conversation. It was an hour of me just being like, "Well, this aspect of liberalism doesn't work." And he's like, "Yeah, it seems like that seems to be the case." And I'm like, "Well, this aspect doesn't work." "Yeah, I feel like that's probably the situation now." <laughs> okay, I did not did not expect to walk into nothing but just kind of uh, you know, uh demur agreed agreement, but here we are.
1: I mean, I guess that's that's technically a successful debate, even if it's not great listening, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, how ha- what what are you gonna do if your if your interlocutor is just gonna spend an hour telling you yeah that's basically correct I mean what what is there to complain about But it was it was definitely not what I was expecting. Uh, well,
1: and that's sort of an an interesting thing as well is that I think a lot of right wingers don't realize that they know their enemies' opinions much better than our yeah. enemies know ours. Yes, uh, and you'll you'll see this anytime you interact with with like progressive types is that once they kind of like hear you make one. You know, kind of like dissenting opinion, they'll kind of like throw back at you this kind of like odd strawman caricature of like racist Mister Burns from The Simpsons. You know, where it's like, oh, then you must want X, Y, Z, and it's like, no, not at all. And if you can kind of step out of that, not only can you uh, actually get to a productive dialogue by, and and obviously you have to be careful with this with only certain people, but you can get to interesting places by basically you know showing someone a a uh, uh, critique they're not used to i'll put it that way
0: yeah I, I think that's very true a lot of people don't understand the left; just does not have a theory of mind for you like they are completely unfamiliar with with your goals with your un- understanding of the world with your arguments and uh you, you'd be surprised how quickly that uh that you know they can kind of turn on a dime once you uh, kind of get them into that mode let's see uh florida henry here says with the near complete collapse of the nuclear family, extended family and community, could this be the last cycle? Uh, no, because remember guys, like what, what's the, you know, what's the story about how Rome starts, right? They, they need a bunch of wives. And so they do, they, they go and capture them from the next, uh, the next city over like the civilization gets a lot rawer than this. Like I, I understand, you know, when you grew up in, a time where you kind of saw this idealized 50s 1950s lifestyle and you understood that there were uh, you know kind, kind of more there's more to life than the things that you were handed to and that certain aspects of society are kind of on the downward slope it can be easy to just say well this is as bad as things have gotten oh it's it's not even close uh which which could be a black pill you know <laughs> you could say oh, well things could get a lot worse than they can uh, but the white pill is that things have been much, 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 much worse. And have and, and civilization has continued. Not something new. There has been rebirth. So no, you're you are not on the last cycle.
1: Oh, excuse me. Sorry, I got over eager there. No problem. You're 100% right. And I think that also, and I don't mean to get into a theological discussion, but you see some of this with like rapture and end time stuff. Yeah, It's this idea that, you know, I am, I or my culture is the most important thing to ever happen to human history. And I hate to say it is probably not true. Like the world still goes on if America stops being in charge of everything.
0: America, like, I boomer, hate to break it to you, American boomer eschatology is wild. Is a wild drug, man. It is a wild. It, it drug. It
1: really is, and I don't yeah. want to just like beat up on anyone's beliefs, but America can go away, and you will be fine. That I'm not saying that will happen, but that is a that's a distinct possibility. You know, America can go away, and the world will be. Still spin on its axis, and so I think that there is this, and it's a natural human reaction, right? It's this idea that, well, I am me, therefore I am the most important thing ever. Uh, but I think it's good to check that instinct, and I think that the good thing about you know the idea of cyclical history, which you know you see in in the Old Testament, you see in the the classical tradition, is this idea that, yeah, okay, well, you may be on the downside, but something else will come in its place. It's not the end. You know, this isn't the you know, this isn't the battle of war again
0: i think that is true all right crooper weirdo says did you guys just uh he's just a normie con me really uh yeah that's right we we've we've uh submitted to the tyranny of just when it comes to fred rogers i'm sorry Cooper weirdo uh, we will erect a statue to his outside shoes and his outside uh sweater i i think those are the most heroic sweater and shoe combos that uh, mr rogers had and you you are right that we should not j- just characterize them as a normie. Uh Crooper Weird also says we need to take the right wing seriously. <laughs> Deal cribble gets a statue.
2: <laughs> Look, I am uh <laughs> I never claim to be consistent. I just claim to have written one article. So uh you you got me there, I'll be honest.
0: <laughs> He's it's brought Put you in a quarter with nothing but facts and reason yeah i mean well you here's are the owned.
2: best part about uh being a a, a post-modern zoomer is that well guess what my feelings don't care about your facts so i'm that's right. wrong but still confidently wrong
0: <laughs> and that's that's really what the heroic is all about at the end all yeah, right, right guys <laughs> well we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up but thank you so much for coming by guys it's been a lot of fun thanks once again to jay burden Please make sure that you go ahead and check out his show and his Substack. Really appreciate everyone coming by for the discussion. And as always, I will talk to you guys next time.